Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, taking over the asylum system. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has questioned whether the United Nations 1951 Refugee Convention is fit for our modern age. She told a meeting of the right-wing American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., that we now live in a completely different time from when the convention was signed. Case law, she argued, has lowered the threshold so that persecution, as defined in the convention, is now interpreted as discrimination. That instead of the well-founded fear an asylum seeker requires to qualify for assistance, a credible or plausible fear is enough. Now, this might sound like semantics, but if the rules were changed, for some people, it could be a matter of life or death. Ms Braverman said... We will not be able to sustain an asylum system if, in effect, simply being gay or a woman and fearful of discrimination in your country of origin is sufficient to qualify for protection. The status quo, where people are able to travel through multiple safe countries and even reside in safe countries for years while they pick their preferred destination to claim asylum, is absurd and unsustainable. Has the Home Secretary got a point? Or are migrants being demonised once more? If the rules were tightened, who would lose out? We're going to speak to Layla Zadeh. Layla is the Executive Director of Rainbow Migration, a charity that supports LGBTQI plus people seeking asylum in the UK. She came to the UK as a refugee herself when she was a child. And we're also going to be hearing from Natasha Sangaridis of Freedom From Torture. Before that, though, just a quick reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. So head over, if you can, and subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already done so, thanks very much indeed. Welcome then to Layla and Natasha. Layla, interesting, this reference to LGBT people from Suella Braverman. How significant are they as a proportion of asylum seekers coming to the UK? The government's own statistics show that last year, only about 2% of all asylum claims were brought by people who feared persecution on the basis of their sexual orientation. So it's a really small number that we're talking about. And these people, they've gone through unimaginable horrors. One of the people that we work with who was granted asylum last year is Adams, and he's from Ghana. In Ghana, he'd been attacked on the street several times because he's bisexual and his partner had been killed. Now, this is a situation where people are fleeing for their lives. Over 60 countries worldwide criminalise people because they're LGBT. And in many of those countries, those laws exist because it was Britain who imposed them when they were a British colony. And what Suella Braverman really is doing is distracting from the failures of this current government, which has left people waiting for decisions on their asylum claims for years in some cases. It's putting people into substandard housing and accommodation, which is overcramped and forcing people to live in poverty. What would be better for all of us is if she upholds values that we all hold dear, values such as kindness and humanity, and creates an asylum system that is focused on treating people with dignity and with respect. I'm intrigued by her assertion that the threshold 
for what constitutes persecution has been lowered. Is there any evidence of that? There's no evidence of that. To get refugee status as an LGBTQI plus person is extremely difficult because you have to prove your sexual orientation or gender identity. And we can all imagine how hard that must be, whether you're straight or bisexual or a lesbian, for example. And in fact, in the law that this government passed last year, the Nationality and Borders Act, they actually require now for you to prove to an even higher level that you are, in fact, LGBT. So there's no evidence for that assertion. There is a reality, though, isn't there, that there are many countries in the world where to be LGBTQI plus is to, however unfair and unreasonable it is, where that will invite discrimination. I suppose there's something about what Suella Braverman says, I think, that will be relatively easy for her supporters to spin out and say, well, look, we can't help everybody around the world who is in that situation. Well, the statistics speak for themselves. We're talking about around 2% of all asylum claims being based on sexual orientation. That percentage of asylum claims that are based on sexual orientation has actually gone down in recent years. At most, it was only ever 6%, according to statistics which are available on this government's website. And if you look at the countries where people are coming from, they're coming from places such as Iran, where they can get the death penalty, or Bangladesh, where people have been beaten to death on the street, for example, or Uganda, where the government has recently passed a law that could result in LGBT people being killed. And most people, when they flee their country, they actually stay in the country immediately next door to them. It's only very small numbers that make it to the UK. And we can see in the response that people in this country have had to refugees fleeing Ukraine, that people really do welcome people. People have opened their own homes. We are a welcoming country. We support refugees. My own family was welcomed here and we've been protected here thanks to the Refugee Convention. And in a recent poll last year, 81% of people thought that people who are coming here should be allowed to work. And of course, if people are allowed to work, then it's a much lower cost to the state as well. Natasha, what do you make of Suella Braverman's speech? For a liberal democracy, it's frankly quite shameful that we're seeking to weaken protections for vulnerable groups and minority groups, whether it's women or LGBTQI plus groups. And I think we've got to remember this comes off the back of a law recently being passed, the Illegal Migration Act, which again sought to dismantle international protections and go against international rules. I was intrigued by her suggestion that the world is a very different place from how it was in 1951 when the UN Convention was drawn up. I mean, of course, the world is a very different place in some respects, but not with regard to the threat that people face. Yeah, and I think that's right. The, at the time of drafting, it was drafted for a specific purpose, but with the idea in mind that we should be, as nations, willing to take in people who are facing unimaginable horrors and provide them with sanctuary. Now, as the 70 years has passed, the convention has adapted and is capable and has proved itself to be capable of changing because 
laws are made through case law that mean that the interpretation of the convention has changed to bring it up to date, which is why we've been able to bring in groups that might previously have been hidden or not been obvious to people, as was originally conceived. I saw a statistic from the right wing Centre for Policy Studies. They claim that under the criteria that now apply under the UN Convention, 780 million people worldwide would qualify as asylum seekers. Obviously, we've got a population that's been made very mindful about the boat people in the channel and so on. It has echoes for me of that Nigel Farage poster, that Leave EU poster, Margaret Thatcher's phrase that Britain risks being swamped. Yeah, I think that's right. Throwing numbers around is scaremongering. And I think we've got to remember whether we're talking about the millions or the 50 odd who are in a boat. These are individual men, women and children who are fleeing for their lives and having to undertake absolutely awful journeys because the safe routes don't exist for them and really humanise the situation. I don't recognise where that figure has come from. The UNHCR, which is the authority on refugees internationally, says that there are 5.4 million asylum seekers internationally. So I don't know how they have made that calculation. And we have to remember, as Natasha said, that these are real people that we are talking about. We worked with a couple recently, lesbians, from a country where there are a lot of gangs and they were being blackmailed so that the gang wouldn't tell their families that they were a couple. They put up with this for ages until one day they could no longer pay because one of them lost her job. They were then threatened at gunpoint and with being raped. And it was at that point that they realised they had to leave the country for their own safety. So most people will put up with a lot before they leave. None of us want to leave our homes, the country we know, the place where we've got friends and family, where we know how everything works until things get really, really bad. Is there a problem, though, with the system at the moment? Is there a sense in which, because there are rules which are known and which are out there in the public domain, that criminal gangs can seek to exploit them? I mean, is there an element of that, of people seeking to manipulate the convention in order to make money and to encourage people to move to wealthier countries where they might get a job? Well, people get exploited because governments and policies aren't protecting them. When my family fled Iran, my mother used smugglers to get me and my sisters out of the country because there was no safe way to leave. If we had been caught at the border by the Iranian authorities, my mother and me and my sisters would all have been imprisoned, even though we were children. We had to use smugglers to get out. So this exists because people have no other choice. Worth pointing out here that Suella Braven didn't, in her speech, actually call for a change in the convention, did she? She highlighted what she regards as weaknesses of it. It's unthinkable, isn't it, that Britain would take unilateral action and leave the UN convention? 
I mean, I would like to think it it would say completely reckless move if one were to embark on such an action. But again, this is yet another act of scaremongering, pitching and placing refugees as scapegoats in a wider political battle. I think we need to remember as well that going back to the previous point, that most people who are displaced globally are staying within their own countries. And only about seven in 10 of them who end up leaving end up staying in the region. So those who make it to Europe is a real small minority. And of those, those who then get into the UK is an even smaller minority. And as Leila said, it's that those kind of lack of safe routes that is meaning why people are coming through irregular channels. There is another dimension to Suella Braverman's speech. She said that multiculturalism has failed. So she's not simply talking about allowing people into the country or perhaps not allowing people into the country, but the suggestion that once they arrive here, they do not add to the country, they being refugees of whatever hue, whatever background, that their presence here is a point of conflict. That has not been my experience of growing up a refugee in this country. I have always been welcomed wherever I go. Me and my sisters went to school in this country. My parents have worked in this country. We've only ever been welcomed. Nobody has ever accused us of somehow not fitting in, for example. So I don't know on what basis she's making that assertion. Most of us are proud to live in a diverse country, diverse in terms of nationality, ethnicity, that the LGBT community is working here, that in our high streets, we've got food from all over the world available to us. And this is something that most of us are proud of. And Suella Braverman's speech is going against what most people actually feel. And Natasha, though, she says that you can see the failure of multiculturalism, as she describes it, play out on the streets of cities all over Europe, from Malmo to Paris, Brussels to Leicester, Her words will find an echo in parts of Europe. The far right has been pretty successful at times in elections in France. The AFD has had electoral success in Germany. I don't know whether the Conservative Party would like being compared to those parties, but Giorgio Maloney came to power in Italy with what many people regarded as a far right agenda on migration as well. So Suella Braverman is not speaking in a vacuum here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is not just now, this is historically. Throughout history, we've seen populist and authoritarian regimes use immigrants and or refugees as scapegoats in their own political bids for power. So this is not something new. I think that what's actually happening in the UK as we see more and more of this anti-refugee rhetoric being played out in the public domain is that actually there is an increasing number of caring and compassionate people around this country who are coming together and wanting a grown-up form of politics that positions the asylum system as something that offers protection in a fair, dignified and compassionate way, because that's not what's happening at the moment. It's a lot of grandstanding and scapegoating and not addressing the system per se. What's happened is a whole neglect of the system and driven it into absolute chaos and shambles. 
as well as LGBT people, and we've mentioned that a fair bit on the podcast so far. I mean, she does also talk about women, and of course, women aren't sadly persecuted in many parts of the world. They're held to be inferior in many societies. And women, simply by virtue of being women, might qualify for refugee status under the UN Convention. You're shaking your head at that. No, there's nothing that says that any woman or any gay person can just get status just for the very fact that that they are a woman. That is not correct. As Layla said earlier, being able to prove one's sexuality, or in our case, we work with survivors of torture, being able to prove that you have been tortured, for instance, is extremely difficult. Anybody who has been through the asylum determination system or anybody who represents or works alongside asylum seekers knows that it is extremely difficult process to be able to disclose what has happened to you, be able to document, represent and get across your story and then meet the threshold for persecution. I would agree with everything that Natasha has said. And I would also like to point out, for example, that the Refugee Convention does protect women when they are being persecuted, when their lives are at risk or in cases, for example, where rape and sexual violence is being used as a weapon of war. And we have all welcomed in this country women fleeing the Balkans, Yazidi women who have been fleeing ISIS, or women fleeing the Taliban. It's well known how appalling life is for women in those contexts. And the Refugee Convention rightly protects women in those circumstances. How do you think and why do you think it has been possible to mobilise anti-migrant sentiment in the UK, a country which, as you've both acknowledged, has traditionally given at least some kind of welcome to people fleeing persecution. The people of this country have been incredibly welcoming to refugees, both my family and, for example, Ukrainian refugees, by opening up their homes. And most of us, if somebody came knocking on our door when we're at work, for example, or walked into a cafe where we were sitting and said, can you help me? Somebody is chasing me down the street, throwing stones at me, trying to kill me. We'd invite them in, shut the door behind them, sit them down and say, what can we do to help you? The problem we have is that government policies are dividing our communities. We have a system whereby if you're seeking asylum, you're not allowed to work, not allowed any choice about where you live. And that really isolates and segregates people, particularly when the government is pursuing policies such as putting people in isolated former army barracks or putting them on barges. This is dividing communities. And this is where this rhetoric is playing into. We need to see a system based on kindness and compassion that helps us build our communities. It's underpinned, though, isn't it, by appliant media or at least appliant media in part, those newspapers who will have headlines screaming about the boats, the migrant crossings across the channel and so on. It doesn't happen in isolation. I think that's right. I think what we're seeing as well is that most people who are arriving in the UK and who are having their claims determined are in fact found to be in need of protection. The message that is being given out is that people are queue jumping and that they are 
faking it somehow, when actually the threshold for being believed is extremely high, and that those who go through the determination process are by and large found to be in need of protection. So actually, that is a real myth that the system is being exploited. The problem is that the media, as you have both said, is that they're focusing on people without looking at the individuals. When you look at each individual person's case, none of us can help but be moved. And that is what is missing from a lot of the media coverage is actually looking at these people as individuals, as human beings with wishes, with loved ones, with a desire to live, with a sense of humor, with interest in cooking or football or whatever it is, things that we've all got in common. And that is what's missing from a lot of the media coverage is looking at the individual as a human being and what awful circumstances have caused them to undertake such a treacherous journey and try to build their lives in a country which can be completely unknown to them. Layla, thank you for your time. That's Layla Zadeh from Rainbow Migration. Thanks also to Natasha Sangaridis from Freedom From Torture. My name is Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Just to remind you before we go that this podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our wonderful monthly newspaper. Don't forget to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. This episode was produced by me and Harvey White in Birmingham. It is a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. We'll see you again very soon, but for now, thank you and goodbye.